verses 16 through 33. So uh, if you can please turn with me there now, uh, Genesis 18, 16 through 33. And as you're turning, let me just remind you of the context of this, this passage. Um, last week we saw the, the theophany, literally the appearance of God, um, who I believe to be Christ pre-incarnate, meeting with Abraham. And he was accompanied by two men who we believe to be angels. And why did they come? They came to reassure Abraham of the covenant that God had made to him, right? That, that despite Sarah being de- advanced in years, that she would have a son uh, one year from, from, from then. Uh, and then, you know, as you remember, Sarah laughed at God, and, and, and God said, why did you laugh? And she said, I didn't laugh. And then he said, well, you did indeed laugh, right? You remember? Um, and, and this meeting, <clears throat> it wasn't just to reassure them that nothing is impossible with God, but also the purpose of this meeting was to, to reveal God's pending judgment on the great city of Sodom and Gomorrah, as we'll find in our text. So uh, with that context in mind, let's enter into our text this morning, Genesis eighteen sixteen through 33, which says, Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he was promised him. What, was, what he has promised him. Verse 20, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that, they have, that, that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went down toward Sodom, but Abraham still uh, stood up before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it for, from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but just this once. I added just this once, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, please help us today as we seek to mine out the treasure found in this text. 
Use your word today to teach us much about who you are and why you do the things that you do so that we would all the more devote ourselves to you and live for you all the days of our life. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Ten years ago, um, <clears throat> some of you don't know this about me, but ten years ago, uh, <clears throat> I played center field for the uh, First Baptist Church in my town. Um, and that, that sounded like, it started off like it was going to be, like I was going to say something a lot cooler, like ten years ago, I played center field for like the Columbus Clippers or something. No, it was just church league, um, which at times didn't feel very church-like at all. Um, things got heated often in that church league, and uh, the league was self-governed. Uh, the rule was that every team had to offer volunteer umps or, or referees, if you know nothing about baseball, uh, to, to ump other games. Um, and this was something that, uh, you know, I didn't want to ever do. Uh, I didn't know much about baseball at the time. I didn't want to umpire anything, um, so I never really offered to umpire um, and it was late in the season, though, and uh, there was a, a volunteer ump was needed for a really, really big game uh, towards the end of the, uh, the season between two big rivals, the Methodists and the Catholics. And <laughs> it's, it, it's just true. And because I had not taken a turn yet, uh, my number was called for, for this, uh, to ump this game. And I, I didn't call balls and strikes, you know, uh, behind the plate. I just umped the first and second base, okay? A very easy job, right? Um, my only job was to call the runner either out or safe when they got to first or second base. That's it, right? Um, but I was a bit inexperienced and a bit nervous, and uh, I was making calls way too fast. Uh, I was calling runners out and safe before they were even out or, or safe. Um, and you'd think that as the game went on that I would have gotten better at, at, at my, with my calls, um, but it actually got worse. And uh, the game was really close. It was like in the eighth or ninth inning, and there was a really tight call at first base. And um, when I made the call, I screamed out loud, out, but then I gestured with my hands that the runner was safe. Um, so both teams were both very angry and, and, and excited at the same time. Um, I will forever be remembered by everyone there that day as probably one of the worst umpires ever. Um, it was my poor judgment that revealed what kind of umpire that I was. And on a serious note, you know, we look at many today in authority and scrutinize their judgment, don't we? We judge their decision-making, and rightly so, because one's character is revealed through one's judgments and decision-making. Not only do referees get scrutinized for their judgments, but so do parents, employers, actual judges and justices, presidents, kings, pastors, right, etc. I'm sure everyone here has at one point in their life had their judgments scrutinized, right? Today we're going to look at the judgments of God, and we will find that his judgments are perfect because our God is perfect. Remember this, that God's actions reflect God's character. So his judgment must be perfect if he himself is perfect. If I could entitle this message this morning, the title would be God's Perfect Judgment. God's Perfect Judgment. Let's look into our text together this morning, looking at verse 16 to start. Let's look at verse 16. This, this divine meeting, okay, is coming to an end. The men who we believe to be angels have stood up and have looked down towards Sodom. 
And Abraham, he continues in his hospitality, right? It says here in verse 16, by kind of seeing them off, if you will. But in verse 17, something interrupts the exit. Something more needs to be said to Abraham, like a, like a product on TV being sold. But wait, right? There's more. We see the Lord, all caps, Yahweh, God in the flesh, I believe the pre-incarnate Christ, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And if I'm Abraham and I hear that, right, I'm like, wait, what do you mean? Well, you know, tell me, you got to tell me, Lord, right? Uh, you can't just say something like that and leave. You know, has anybody ever done that to you where they said, hey, I got to tell you something. No, wait, never mind. And then they walk away. What a tormenting thing that is, right? Why would this question from the Lord be written in our Bibles? Is the Lord really wrestling with himself like we wrestle with ourselves at times? Is he fickle? Does he change his mind? No, we know his will is sure, right? I think the question here is is actually a rhetorical question that's being asked so that it can be answered, uh, so that the readers, so that we could know exactly why God is revealing this prophetic truth to Abraham. The why to this whole dialogue to follow our text is found right here in verses 18 and 19. Why does God reveal this prophetic judgment to Abraham? It says in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him, verse 19, for I have chosen him. Why does God reveal this truth or this prophetic uh, truth to, to Abraham? Well, number one, it's because God has chosen to set his affection on Abraham and make him into a mighty nation. Verse 18 echoes what the the Abrahamic covenant expresses in Genesis 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17. Abraham was chosen by God, just as Abraham's descendants were chosen by God. Uh, You can jot this reference down, but Deuteronomy 7 tells us why they were chosen by God. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 8, which says, For you are a people holy, meaning set apart, to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Why did God choose Abraham? Why did God choose Abraham's descendants to be his people? Let me just say that God didn't choose Abraham and Israel because they were the greatest nation. It wasn't because they were the smartest or the tallest uh, or the best looking or the most well-liked, right? But get this, God chose Abraham and he chose his descendants so that his glory would be revealed through them just as he chooses us today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 explains to us why God chooses, starting in verse 27. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, right? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. 
And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If we chose ourselves, if Abraham chose himself, we could say, hey, look at what I did, right? Check out what I accomplished for myself. Look at what I earned. Look at what I secured for myself. You guys should all be like me because I've arrived, right? I've made it. I did it. But no, right? Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So Abraham is to know of this prophetic judgment because, number one, he's been chosen by God. And number two, it is said in verse 19 that he, Abraham, may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he was promised him. Abraham had the opportunity to learn about this prophetic truth, this, this prophetic judgment, and to have this dialogue that he has with God in our text so that he can tell it to all of his future descendants that he can teach this lesson revealed to him, and that it can be passed down from generation to generation to generation. And we've already read, and if you've read this before, that, that God's judgment is the subject of this text. And as we've already established, passing judgment reveals one's character. God's judgment reveals God's character. Should we live in light of God's justice? Should we live in light of who God is? We absolutely should. And it is clear that Sodom and Gomorrah, okay, what's going to happen in chapter 19, them being destroyed, right? Spoiler alert. That becomes an object lesson seen throughout the Bible. For example, let me just mention to you some verses that prove that point. Jot these references down. You know, Jesus, in Matthew 10, 14 to 15, Jesus sends out his disciples, remember, and he says, if anyone rejects the message that I give to you, you know, dust off the, the dirt from your sandals, right, the dust, um, it, it, the, the dirt, I think it is, and I give, and, and he says that those who reject the message that I give to you, it'll be worse for them that, than what happened in the, with the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, remember? Or Jesus in another gospel in Luke 17, 28 to 30, he warns of future judgment that will come, that will be comparable to the judgment found in Genesis 19. The, genesis, uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. There are other references of Jesus using Sodom and Gomorrah as an object lesson, but, did, but did, Israel, did Israel always remember and teach this lesson throughout its history? No. In fact, they had forgotten uh, much of, much, through, throughout much of their history. And God sent, he would send his prophets uh, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, uh, and, and other prophets as well, who were sent to warn uh, God's people of judgment. Here are just two references for time's sake. Jeremiah 23, 14. But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They, being God's chosen people, commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his um, evil. 
all of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Or another text, Isaiah 1.10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Again, those, those, those prophets are addressing God's people as if they, because of the way they're living, they're living like Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are so many more verses and texts text that I could, I could bring to your attention this morning, but my time is short. But the point is, judgment prophesied, this judgment prophesied, was purpose for teaching future generations of God's people, and it is also purpose for us as we have been adopted into to God's family through Christ, to learn about God's judgment, to learn about God himself, to fear him, to remember his holiness and his hatred towards sin. And notice, look at your Bibles in verse 19, that Abraham was to take this truth to his descendants so that they would keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Notice it is not a way, but the way. There are two paths, but only one leads to life. The way of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, the, the way of, of this world, is a way that is destined for a, a, eternal wrath and destruction. 2 Peter 2.6 says this, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. There is the way that leads to destruction, and there is the way of the Lord which leads to life. The question is, which way are you heading this morning? So let me give you an outline for this morning. I love outlines. Um, it, it took me a little bit to get there. But in Genesis 18, 16 through 33, God teaches three lessons. Three lessons about himself and his perfect judgment so that his people would walk in the way of the Lord. God teaches three lessons about himself and his perfect judgment so that his people would walk in the way of the Lord. The first lesson that we can learn concerning this future judgment is found right here in verse 20. Let's look at our Bibles. It says, Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. Lesson number one, jot this down. God will not tolerate sin forever. God will not tolerate sin forever. So how bad is Sodom really? Is God just being over the top here? Is he just flexing his muscles to flex his muscles? Before we look outside of the text for Sodom, uh, Sodom's sinful condition, let me just note for us some, some clues in this verse, in verse 20, that deal with the extent of Sodom's sinfulness. Look at the word outcries in verse 20. What is this outcry that God hears? I believe what this, this, this word means is that it was, it's dealing with others whom Sodom and Gomorrah had unjustly and violently oppressed. And we'll see evidence of that in, uh, in some references that I share in a moment. But just so you know, the same word outcry that's seen in verse 20 here is used elsewhere in Scripture talking about oppressed widows and orphans uh, in Exodus 22, the oppressed slaves in Deuteronomy 24, the Israelites when they're enslaved in Egypt. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah uses this term eight times to describe the horrifying screeching and terror when a city was attacked. One commentator writes that this word um, describes, quote, the anguished cry of the oppressed, 
the, the agonized plea of, of the victim for help in the face of some great injustice. In the Bible, these terms are spread with a sense of sadness and pity, with moral outrage and soul-stirring passion. The sin of Sodom, then, is heinous, moral and social corruption, an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, a cynical insensitivity to the suffering of others. End quote. Are there people and cities like this in our world today? Yes, there are. PD just spoke earlier um, because this is Sanctity of Life Sunday, right? Think of the great injustice of abortion that takes place in our, in our world every single day. And as God's little image bearers, innocent babies are torn to shreds in their mother's wombs. It makes me nauseous to think of the number that, of babies that are, are slaughtered every day. It makes me so angry to see abortion, this murder, to be celebrated and encouraged by people in our country and around the world. Think of the outcries in the womb. Think about the outcries of, of war in our world, of all the injustices that come with living in a sin-cursed, fallen world. One could ask how high these outcries in our present day, how high they have reached. It was, if it was high in Sodom's day, how high are these outcries today? How very grave are they to God? If you look at verse 20, you'll see the words very grave in the English uh, standard version, which denotes something serious. But in the original language, however, these words literally, literally mean very heavy. So in other words, verse 20 could be rendered this way. Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very heavy. We could wonder, and we, we wouldn't be the first ones to wonder, right? How heavy will God let this, this, these outcries around us be before he throws down? How loud do the outcries need to, 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 to be? And we can't answer this question. Do you remember what God said to Job when he wondered that question? In Job 40, 46 through, uh, Job 46 through 9, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, dress for action like a man. In other words, God said to Job, gird up your loins. I will question you and make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? How long will God tolerate the sins that are around us? We can't answer that question. Truthfully, we don't know. But we can trust that God will not tolerate sins forever. And we can trust in his judgment because it's perfect, because he is perfect and he's good and he's holy. And thank God that his ways are not our ways, right? Because if his ways were our ways, what a mess we would be in. Um, don't forget that without his great patience, his rich mercy, his immeasurable grace that's been shown to us, right, that we would be, we, everyone in this room would be in the center of God's crosshairs. We were once at odds with God. There was enmity between us and God, a hostility, and yet God through Christ brought us into a right relationship with him. We can and we should rejoice in having peace with God because remember, God, okay, we've been saved by God, but we've been saved by God from God, right, from his just wrath, 
that we were saved. Thank God for who he is. Psalm 145, verse 8, that the Lord is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, and rich in love. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10, 31. God is gracious, he's slow to anger, he's rich in love. And this is true even considering the context of Sodom and Gomorrah and their pending judgment. This is not the first time that Sodom, by the way, um, is mentioned in Genesis. You know, it's not as if God is going to obliterate the city of Sodom and Gomorrah because Sodom had a really bad week, okay? Um, I, I, uh, in chapter 13, just you know, knife this page and go back to Genesis 13, 13. Look at what that says. Look at what that says. I'm not great at math, but what? That's like five chapters away, right? And, and, and look at what it says. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord, right? Some people would rather fashion for themselves a God of their own making and just stop there, that, you know, God is loving, He's merciful, He's gracious, but then be silent concerning his justice. What's, the, what's, what's wrong with that? Number one, it's not the God of the Bible, right? That's, that's number one. And number two, what a horrible God that would be, right? If he wasn't just, if he didn't judge evil. We can thank together God for not tolerating sin forever. Amen? All sin will one day be judged by God, either to be presently judged, future, ju- future uh, judged in the future, or both. So Sodom has not repented. The outcries were great. The weight of sin was heavy. The people on earth knew it. Okay, God knew it. And God in his perfect judgment would no longer tolerate their sin. And it is established in this text by the Lord himself that judgment is deserved. It was established in Genesis 13, 13, that judgment was deserved And to build an even bigger case against the city and their lawlessness, let's look at what the scriptures have to say about the state of Sodom and Gomorrah's sinfulness. What was their sin condition like? In Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50, the text says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Ezekiel compares Israel to Sodom because they were acting just like them. Proud, they were oppressing others, as we've discussed with the word outcries, and they were also guilty of unnatural sexual sin, sexual immorality, specifically homosexuality. Paul uh, Paul Grice, he will explain next week the unnatural desires that the people of Sodom and, um, had toward the two angels that God sends to save Lot and his family. I'll do that next week. And, and, and how the men of Sodom respond towards these angelic visitors should tell us what the state of this place was, right? They were hostile, wicked, and engrossed with sin. Very different from the hospitality that, that the three men received from Abraham. And rightfully so, because righteousness contrasts that of wickedness. But a major proof text for Sodom's sexual sin could be found in Jude 1.7. 
Jude 1.7, which says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So again, what is Sodom's sin condition before the Lord? They were sexually immoral. They were unnatural. They were homosexual, not hospitable, proud, hostile towards those who were known to be weak, innocent, and poor. That's the the wicked state of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's because of these weighty sins and these many outcries that our perfectly holy God chooses not to tolerate their sin any longer, which moves us into our next teaching lesson found in verse 21, which Yahweh is seen speaking again, Lord in all caps, the great I am. He says, look at your Bibles. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Second lesson, lesson number two, God's judgment is just. God's judgment is just. Now, this text makes many heads, it causes many heads to spin. Some will look at a text like this and espouse the false teaching of of open theism, uh, the belief that God isn't omniscient or all-knowing, that God doesn't know what the future holds. But if this text literally means that, think of all the texts that that would contradict in Scripture, right? Right? Uh, P.D. read uh, for us earlier Psalm 139, right? text that talks about God being completely all-knowing, that He knows all things, including us, right? He knows us better than we know us, right? He knows how many hairs are on our head. He has them numbered, right? He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our, our words before we speak them. He knows our destinations before we reach them, right? He knows everything. A God who is not all-knowing is not a God at all. It's definitely not the God that we have in the Scriptures. And and I don't believe that that's what's being stated here. God knows the state of their hearts. What is being used here then in verse 21 is commonly known as, and it's a big word, and I'm I'm not afraid to use it, all right? It's anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, okay? Anthropomorphic language. It's when the author represents God with human language and action. And there are several anthropomorphisms in the Bible. And I don't think the purpose of this verse is to say that God's knowledge is limited or progressive, right? Because we know that His knowledge is complete and perfect. But the purpose of this verse is to help communicate to the reader, to help communicate to us that God's judgment is in fact just. That He does in fact know the condition of men's heart. He doesn't act without knowing right? But rather, he is acting in accordance with his perfect knowledge. Do you understand? It's not as if, you know, God has the nuclear codes here, and he's getting this real bad, you know, evil vibe coming from, you know, around about Sodom and Gomorrah, and he just, you know, says to himself, I think I might just launch this missile in that general vicinity um, of Sodom, and hopefully I'll make the world a better place, right? That is not what's being communicated here. God is communicating to Abraham and the future descendants of Abraham that he acts in accordance with his knowledge. Take another greater judgment um, in Genesis 6, a global judgment, right? The flood. Did God know the state of man's hearts in the flood? Genesis 6, 5, right? What's said? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, Uh, on the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
I found it interesting also uh, in my study this week that this type of anthropomorphic investigative language is used several times in Genesis, specifically in the context of his judgments. Think, think with me, okay? Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned, what, 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 what is said? He's walking in the garden in the cool of day, and he called to the man and said, where are you? Right? We see it in Genesis 4, 9 through 10, when we come across the first murder of the scriptures. Only took chapter 4 to get there, right? Crazy how sinful we are as people. But it says, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? Right? And then we see it in Genesis eleven five 5, when it came to the Tower of Babel. And the Lord came down to see says in the text, the city and the tower which the children of man had built. But church, God knew everything concerning these circumstances, and he had witnessed everything in these circumstances. But what is being communicated to the reader is that his knowledge of the circumstance is perfect. Therefore, his judgment of these circumstances is perfect. Do you understand? God demonstrated that his judgment was in accordance with his knowledge when it came to the fall of mankind, when it came to Cain's punishment for killing Abel, and when it came to confusing the languages of the people Babel. Parents in the room, you ever been here where you look to one of your kids? I, I'm guilty of this. And I ended up disciplining a kid that didn't do anything wrong. I've, I've done that, um, I, where I disciplined Micah, but really it was Matthew. Uh, my wife tells me later, and I'm like, oh, sorry, little guy. Uh, my bad. That never happens with God. His judgments are just. No one will be able to rightly accuse God one day of injustice. All men will stand before the judge and maker of the entire universe and there are many who will say God's name, many who will claim to do good works in God's name and claim to live good lives before God, and yet never have ever put their faith, their trust in Christ. And to them, Christ will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of what? Iniquity, lawlessness. And guess what? Even in this future judgment, right, his, just, his judgment will be just. Because God's knowledge of our hearts is perfect, which should all the more prompt us as a church to point lives to Christ as the day of judgment draws near. God's judgment is just because he himself is just. The first lesson, okay, that we saw concerning this, this uh, pending judgment was that God will not tolerate sin forever. Second lesson is that God's judgment is just. Let's, uh, the last lesson comes through our, our final 10 verses here. Whoa. Um, and that lesson is that God's judgment is sure. Okay, We see the men who accompany Yahweh, who again we believe to be angels, turn to the city of Sodom in verse 22 and head towards the city, the very city that they would enter into in order to rescue Lot and his family. And yet Abraham stays with God. In verse 22, we see that Abraham's position is not stationary, but that he draws nearer to the Lord, right? Abraham was a friend of God, as, as Pastor Dan mentioned last week, and he had the opportunity to ask God a very um, perplexing uh, question, right? Just think of all the questions that you would ask God if you had that opportunity. And the question he asks is, will you indeed sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? Now, I think it's a, there's a temptation for us to look at every negative event that ever transpires on the earth and be like, well, that's a, just, uh, that's a judgment from God. That, that over here, that's a judgment from God. And, and it could be, but can we ever really know? You know, if that hurricane over there was the judgment of God, sometimes these things are natural disasters because of 
the fact that we live in a, in a world that's fallen and sin-cursed, right? But the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is 100% without a doubt God's judgment on wicked sinners. So what about the righteous? This is Abraham's question. Will God judge them as well? And remember who's in this town, righteous Lot. Did you know that? Lot is deemed righteous in the scriptures. Second Peter, if you don't know this, I don't have time, but Second Peter 2, 7 through 10 calls Lot righteous several times, and God saved him. And if, if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, right? Abraham's question, it could have been because he, he wanted to learn about God's judgment. Uh, Abraham's question, it could have been because he wanted, uh, to, he, his thoughts were on, on Lot, right, and his family. Abraham's question, it could have been the unknown possibility that there were other righteous people in the city. But no matter what Abraham's motive was for asking this question and the upcoming question, one thing is certain that God's judgment is sure. God's judgments are sure. Verse 24, it's, he says, If there are 50 righteous people within the city, will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the sake of 50 righteous who are in it? You know, it really bothered me in my study this week. A lot of commentators that commentated on this passage talked about it in such a way that Abraham is bartering with God, that he's negotiating with God. Almost like, you know, it's like Abraham throws out a number 50, and then God comes back and says, well, what about 100? You know, and, and Abraham says, uh, you know, something else. And they somehow meet in the middle right? That is not what we have recorded here. God knows the number of the wicked people in this city, and we do too if, we, if we've read this, this narrative, right, that happens in chapter 19. That there's not 50, there's not 45, there's not 30, there's not 20, there's not even 10 righteous found within this city. Though Abraham intercedes for the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, we know that God's judgment is sure. Each time Abraham asks if God would refrain from destroying the city for the sake of a few, God's response is compliant with Abraham's request because it aligns ultimately with the will of God. Abraham did not change God's mind. He did not barter with God. His judgments are sure. And you'll see this next week when the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are obliterated even despite Abraham's intercession, except for righteous Lot and his two daughters, not counting his wife who turned to, into a pillar of salt. Spoiler alert again. Uh, I do that at times. Don't ever watch a movie with me that I've seen before. God's judgments are sure, right? Makes me think of Psalm 1, right? Psalm 1, verse 5. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked, the way of the wicked will perish. God's, judgment are, God's judgments are sure. He doesn't mix up his judgments. There's no such thing as purgatory, right, where righteous people have to go and suffer and face judgment, right, for a period of time. There is heaven and there is hell. There is destruction and there is life. There is condemnation and there is redemption. Lot, who is righteous, is saved by God, and the inhabitants of Sodom are destroyed. Few are saved and many are destroyed. Is there a teachable lesson in all of this? Does it really reveal God's character? I think it does. In understanding that God is, is perfect in His judgment, knowing that He will not tolerate sin forever, that His judgment is just, and that His judgment is sure. 
Think, church, with me, that, and, and friends who are here this morning with us, think of Christ who is the only way to salvation, your only escape. Christ says in the Gospels, uh, I believe this is Matthew, uh, Matthew's account, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are, are, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. If you this morning have not put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today, today is the day of your salvation. You can have peace with God today if you put your faith in Him. This morning, to, 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 to be, think about this. If you have not done that, you're separated from God. This morning, to be joined together with God through Christ, to be forever secured and never separated again from the love of Christ, for the love of God. Why wait? Don't tarry. Don't wait till later. Put your trust in who He is, who Christ is, and what He's accomplished for you. Because again, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10.31, right? He will not tolerate he will not tolerate your sins forever. He will not. His judgment, and also remember that his judgment is sure, and his judgment is just. We can see these lessons here that, um, that were taught, to be taught to future generations of, of Abraham's descendants. We can also see how these lessons apply to our living today, that we too would walk in the way of the Lord, living in light of him and his perfect judgments. Now, uh, real quick, I'm just going to say this, okay? Um, I usually let you guys out way too early every time. I need a little bit grace over law here. Give me just two more minutes, all right? Can you? Can you, can you do that? Grace over law, please. Um, I just want to highlight for you one thing that I think would be encouraging as we walk out of this place, and that's looking at Abraham. One more lesson to just add on here, okay? Look at the character of Abraham's faith. I'm not telling you to be like an Abraham here, okay? Was Abraham a sinner? He absolutely was, right? Men, love your wives sacrificially, right? Don't, like, give up your wife to save your own neck, okay? Uh, if we're going to imitate anybody, we ought to imitate Christ, amen? Amen, not man. But I do want to highlight the genuineness of Abraham's faith just for a quick second. Just as James says, true faith, what? It works, right? That, that faith without works is dead. Works uh, slash fruit is evidence that we have true faith. And I know we'll see that evidence later on with Genesis 22 with Isaac, right? Uh, his son. But, but again, spoiler alert. But in Genesis 15, 6, right? Genesis 15, 6, before our passage, what did Abraham do? He believed in God, and it was accounted to him as what, what? Righteousness, right? And I think there's evidence of his faith even in our passage. Just real quick here. Um, Abraham is told that this, this incoming judgment is going to take place. Could feel helpless. I don't know how you would feel, right? But he could have felt helpless. And, 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 and what was his first response in, 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 in feeling this way? Number one, he drew near to God. You see that in verse 23? And he talked to him. He prayed. Will that preach, church, when you feel helpless? It'll preach, right? That's a lesson for us as well. Who, who we run to in times of helplessness says a lot about who we trust the most, yes? If you don't run to God when you feel helpless, what will you eventually feel? Hopeless, right? Second lesson, 
The next way is faith works in through reflecting, it, it, it is through reflecting on who God is and who he was before God. Did you see that in the text, right? As he asks those questions in humility. At one point he says, um, I am who, uh, I who am but just dust and ashes. One commentator put it that, you know, he, uh, one commentator said Abraham knew that he was just de- uh, decorated dust before the Lord. It's good, right? He reflected on the person and work of God, right? And how good would it do us when we face difficult times, hardships, feeling helpless to remember the character of who God is? Yes? Last final lesson, uh, and, then I'll, and, I'll, and I'll close. Last lesson from the, gen, uh, the genuineness of Abraham's faith is found right there in verse 33, and I don't think this is a stretch. It says, when he had finished seeking, uh, speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place, Abraham ultimately had to trust in God, right? Notice that Abraham returned to his place. In chapter 14, when Lot got carried away, do you remember this? What did he do? He went out and, he went out and got him. He got him back. Notice that Abraham didn't go into the city and try to get out as many people as he could. He didn't go in in a rescue mission to go get Lot out of the city before it blew up, right? But what did he do? He went back to his place, ultimately resting in the goodness, holiness, righteousness, and, 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 per, and, and perfect justice of God, who is sovereign and ruler of all things. And this ought to be how our faith works every day as we seek to walk in the way of the Lord in this broken, sin-cursed world. Let's pray. Lord, help us to remember that this world will not be broken forever, that you will not tolerate sin forever, that your judgment is perfectly just and sure. Help us to to see you rightly and help us to walk in accordance to who you are and what you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we